What does it even mean? Your pursuit of gut health is probably taking you down a rabbit hole of misinformation, useless concoctions, and false promises. So this is where this uncensored podcast comes in. The gastroenterologist and his daughter is the first of its kind, bringing a specialist gastroenterologist and his daughter, yours truly, to help you navigate the world of all things gut health from mouth to bum and everything in between. Join me, Sandra McHale, gut health specialist dietitian and founder of Nutrition A to Z, and my father, Wagdi McHale, specialist gastroenterologist and internist, as we unpack the most talked about topics in gut health, covering both the medical and lifestyle aspects of all things gut, with a ton of comedy and fecal tete-a-tete. Right, let's get into it. Dad, I think this is our final episode of our second season, or perhaps we'll just keep on going, who knows, with our crazy schedules. And by this time, I think by the time the episode airs, I'll be in Dubai with you all escaping the European winter. So um, funny enough, probably people don't realize it, or maybe they have, but we've done two seasons now, and I've only just realized a month ago that I've been using my podcast mic the wrong way. So uh, I apologize to our listeners and our production team for any audio issues that they've had to put up with. But to get into our 10th episode of the season, we are going to talk about the silent condition impacting millions worldwide, and that is diverticular disease. But before we do, Dad, we have another question from a listener. So here goes. I am 23, and my mom got diagnosed with colon cancer. I'm quite scared now and not sure what I can do for myself. Is there anything in specific I need to do? I heard going vegan can help. Dad, what would you say? Yes, from my side, you don't have to be scared. You're 23. And this depends on what age your mom got colon cancer. If it is in younger age group, so genetic factor can play a role. So it's better to do a colonoscopy as a baseline and including your brothers, sisters as well. And then each country has got a screening program. So you have to join this screening program to be screened regularly to discover any polyps which might lead later on to colon cancer. For this, you will be safe and most likely you will never get colon cancer if you discover it as a polyp. This from my point of view as a gastroenterologist. But for the other point is the lifestyle, which You can talk about it, Sandra. So we've Um, actually covered quite a lot about colorectal cancer, right? No, but we've actually covered a lot in another episode of last season. So I definitely invite you to visit that episode and give it a listen. But in brief, you don't have to go vegan. We do talk in detail in that episode about lifestyle factors, but I would say fiber is key here. Certain factors like alcohol and red meat consumption, I would be mindful of and just making sure that your diet is plant-centered. And by plant-centered, I don't mean you have to go vegan. So it has to be plant-predominant and has a diverse range of different fibers that can definitely protect your insides. So that is my take. But as I said, we did cover it in a whole other episode last season. Okay, Dad, Diverticular Disease 101. What is it? Who gets it? And why? Diverticular disease is a common disorder in the gastrointestinal tract. We can divide it as diverticulosis and diverticulitis and other complications. Diverticulosis itself is a condition that occurs when the small pouches or sacs they form and push 
outward through the weak spots in the colon, and then they are pockets outside. They are most likely found in the lower parts of the colon. However, they can be at any time left, right side as well. So they can they can occur anywhere along the digestive tract, correct? Yes, but mainly in the left side, but some people have got extensive diverticulosis. And most of these people, they don't know that they have it because in many, in most of the cases, they are asymptomatic. They don't give symptoms unless they be a diverticulitis and they will talk about it later. The cause of the diverticulitis is not very clear till now, but the most uh, acceptable theory is a low-fiber diet as if you don't eat enough fiber, this can cause constipation with the hardest tools, which leading to straining and increased pressure in the colon or the intestine. And this as well is not very well proven, but this most acceptable cause. And also if you have lack of exercise, excess body fat, or use of uh, uh, painkillers and so forth. So this is the generally the main cause of the diverticulosis. Who gets the diverticulosis? As mostly the people over 50. If in statistics in US, they've had about one third of the adult habit and more than two thirds of people over 80 years got diverticulosis. And as we said before, most of these people have no symptoms, but if they develop complications, they'll be symptomatic. And how about diverticulitis? Diverticulitis, this is, if this pocket's inflamed or infected, they can cause inflammation of the diverticulosis and they can cause a diverticulitis, which is a condition which is when presents with abdominal pain, fever, sometimes nausea and vomiting, tenderness in the left iliac fossa, the left lower part of the abdomen. This is diverticulitis, which is inflammation or infection of the diverticulitis. Okay, when it I think also one thing I wanted to note about diverticulitis is that the let's say inflammation or infection, if we had to look at infections, it could be bacterial or viral. So if they are bacterial, then what happens is that the the pouch gets a hole and perhaps releases intestinal bacteria leading to inflammation. And if it's viral, I believe again just doing a bit of research is that the uh, specific virus called cytomegalovirus actively replicates in the colonic tissue of some people with diverticulitis. So that again causes that cascade of inflammation and infection. Now also researchers are also looking at it, you know, the impact of a person's immune response and the gut microbiome or gut microbes in the development of diverticulitis. So we don't really fully understand the cause of diverticulitis, correct? Yeah, that's that's true, but it is a very common disease, so we have to, to know more about it. And there is a lot of studies going on as well for the best approach. Well, how about you walk us through a real-life example of one of your, your patients' journey from when they've walked into your clinic to maybe how they're doing now? I've got one patient, he's 53 now. He presented about three years ago with abdominal pain and non-specific symptoms, and he's got some acid reflux symptoms as well, and occasional bleeding per rectum, very mild symptoms. And uh, But we I did for him upper and lower endoscopy. He's got some black reflux, evidence of reflux esophagitis. And in the colon, we discovered that he's got uh, diverticulosis in the left side. It was not inflamed. It was just extending from rectum to the about uh, 30 or 40 centimeter. There's not a lot of them, but we I diagnosed him as a diverticulosis not inflamed. 
And during the follow-up, he developed one episode of diverticulitis, which I've seen him. It was mild, but he's got some leukocytosis, which is increase of the uh, white cell. He's got high CRP, which is inflammation marker, and he's got high ESR, but he was generally okay. He doesn't need admission to hospital. So I give him the diet, which is just to raise the colon. At that time, I give him a course of antibiotic as well, the combination of antibiotic. We usually use ciprofloxacin and methronidazole if there is no sensitivity to either for at least five to seven days and sometimes go to 10 days or 14 days, according to his response. Okay. He got over it and he was very, he didn't have to go to hospital admission. And later on, the progression of the disease, he used to get one episode every eight to six months. And when I was away in Australia, he developed severe attack of diverticulitis and it needed admission to hospital. At that time, he was he had uh, severe pain and they have done for him the uh, workup for acute diverticulitis, like the full blood count and CRP inflammatory markers. Also, they have done CT scan of the colon and pelvis with contrast, and it showed he's got moderate acute diverticulitis. For this, he was admitted. He was given an antibiotic uh, intravenous in the vein. He's got IV fluids for rehydration. There is the colon. And after five days of intravenous antibiotics start to feel better, they introduced the diet for him slowly and he was discharged later with the oral antibiotic course for another 14 days, another total of 14 days. And he became okay. Later on, last I've seen him about a month ago, he was having minimal attacks on and off and never been admitted after this episode. And he sometimes he treated himself with the uh, diet restrictions and fluids and uh, it goes away. So, so he's been managing from a lifestyle perspective. Yeah. He's been prioritizing the management from a lifestyle perspective. That that was after his the last hospital stay admission. And during this this course, of course, we discussed him about surgery if it needed at this stage or not. And he's open for discussion, but he's very reluctant to have surgery if he's controlling it without uh, needing to be admitted to hospital. I think that's the case with a lot of my clients too, in terms of surgery. If obviously, if it's, you know, upon discussion with the whole team, with the gastroenterologist and the surgeon, if they're happy to put off the, the talk of surgery, um, then yeah. I'm sure the, the patients are would do their best to avoid that. For some reason, this year has been packed with clients with diverticular disease. I don't think I've ever seen that many cases before, so I'm not sure if it's because, I don't know, people are becoming more aware that you can actually, you know, look at dietary and lifestyle for managing diverticular disease, or it's just pure coincidence. But, uh, you know... Maybe, maybe due to Zurich weather or something. No doubt. <laughs> well, we haven't seen the sunshine in a very long time, so we do blame the weather for everything. Yeah. But... What I wanted to say is that that also reminds me of my own client who I've recently seen, and she's a, a lovely lady in her in her fifties, and she was getting recurrent uh, episodes of diverticulitis every three to four months, and has had to go on a bout of antibiotics, and I think she's had up to six episodes, and this is where the conversation I think her 
GP, if I'm not mistaken, was pushing towards surgery. And that is the absolute only way to manage her diverticular disease. And that's probably when we started talking. And as you know, we've been working together now for quite some time and she hasn't had a flare-up in six months. And that's the longest time she's gone without a flare-up and her, her team is extremely happy. So this is just kind of a little nudge is that there is so much to do from a dietary and lifestyle perspective, but obviously not undermining the power of, you know, when do we need to actually intervene, whether it's surgery or medication and so on. So again, I think it's a very important note to make here is that it's a constant collaboration between dietitians, for example, like myself and the the team, whether it's you know specifically the gastroenterologist. Okay, Sandra, just uh, to continue this conversation, how about to do round of facts versus fiction to address uh, common misconceptions about diverticular disease? Yes, let's do it. Something different. <laughs> <laughs> All right. People say that uh, eating high-fiber food can worsen diverticular disease symptoms. How about, is it a fact or fiction or what? Absolute fiction. What we know is that, if anything, including high-fiber foods in your diet can actually help manage diverticular disease because it does promote bowel movement regularity, so preventing constipation, which also preventing you know flare-ups. So the key here is to really make sure that you are increasing your fiber gradually until you find that sweet spot that works for you. So I would say definitely fiction. Oh, okay. But during the acute attack, acute if they admitted to hospital with acute severe uh, diverticular disease or diverticulitis, do you give them high fiber diet or you... So because I don't, I no longer work in a hospital setting. And I think when it comes to admission, it is a completely different subgroup of people that we would be dealing with. So the goals would be different depending on the severity of the symptoms, but also depending on the complications, dad. So we know that sometimes it might be indicated where we have to stop, you know, a high fiber diet to, and maybe switch to oral nutrition support just temporarily to give the gut a bit of a break. So this is something that, again, working years and years ago back in the hospital, if we're dealing with things like perforations or fistulas or abscesses or bowel obstruction, so there's a lot of things that can dictate the the nutrition plan. So I would say, generally speaking, if it's an outpatient setting and it is a mild bout of diverticulitis, a flare-up, we just play around with the different types of fibers, depending on the symptoms that they are experiencing. Oh, okay. That's good because sometimes in the hospital, they get the, the, some patients, they are having nausea and vomiting. Sometimes they don't give, they exactly. give them IV fluids, IV, IV, uh, even IV feeding till they get better exactly. in two days. Yeah. Well, another thing, which is uh, one of my patients, I've seen him recently, and he told me he's not consuming nuts and seeds because He's got diverticular disease diagnosed <laughs> about four, five years ago. And he was advised to keep away from nuts and seeds because it might lead to diverticulitis. How about the fiction or fact or what do you think? That is also fiction. Actually, yes, the guidelines have changed and we do not have any evidence at all to, to support that 
you know, we have to be avoiding nuts and seeds and that they do exacerbate diverticular disease. If anything, all the current research is saying that it's not as problematic as once, you know, once thought, and it can be part of a healthy and balanced diet. But again, moderation is key. So if anything, nuts and seeds play a huge, huge role in my client's diets for the prevention of A, any future episodes of diverticulitis, but for the overall management of diverticular disease. Now, again, depending on their symptoms, so perhaps if they are getting diarrhea, if they are experiencing loose stool, I'm not going to up that. Maybe we, instead of whole nuts and seeds, we can switch to nut and seed butters instead. So this is where you have to play around with the forms of fiber, not just the type. So since we're on the topic of diet and, and fiber, you know, after these two questions out of fact and fiction, maybe I just wanted to point out the relationship between diet and diverticular disease, looking at the prevention and treatment and what we currently know. So if we had to look at prevention and maybe the, let's say the, the, the management or prevention of acute diverticulitis, what we do know is there's a whole bunch of things that we need to consider from a dietary perspective. One is consuming a high fiber diet. And by high fiber diet, what we try to work towards is ideally 30 grams of fiber per day, but that will need to be done gradually and under the supervision of your dietitian as well. So I would say about 95% of my clients with diverticular disease are consuming between 30 to 40 grams of fiber per day. But to get to that point, it took us about six months to get to the point of consuming and maintaining that amount of fiber. The other thing is you definitely don't need to avoid nuts and corn and popcorn and fruits with small seeds like strawberries and blueberries, uh, which, you know, back in the day they used to recommend moving often. So being physically active, because that also helps address the constipation, addressing any excess body fat. Now, there's also one thing that I really work on with my clients, anyone that has had an episode of diverticulitis or is diagnosed with diverticular disease, I get them to significantly reduce their red meat intake. And by significantly reducing, I'm talking about once a fortnight, so once every two weeks. Yeah, sometimes so it's difficult for a patient, this one. I know I, you and I have had arguments about this. Also, I know depending on the cultures and so on, but we do have enough evidence to show that red meat, especially processed meats, are pro-inflammatory and can exacerbate symptoms. So this is where I would say, look, be mindful of how often you're consuming red meat and perhaps reduce it to once a week and then eventually once every fortnight. Now, the other thing that I get my clients to limit is alcohol. Even though we don't really have, let's say, uh, strong evidence or associations uh, between alcohol consumption, um, I, I still would include that as part of the guidelines too. And then just making sure that we're correcting any sort of nutrient deficiencies as well, looking at vitamin D levels. That's another thing that's been put in the guidelines there for the management and the prevention of diverticular disease. So these are kind of, again, it's when you look at your dietary pattern, dad, you just need to make sure that it's colorful, you know, high in anti-inflammatory foods, different types of fibers. So we're looking at plant diversity there, low in pro-inflammatory foods like alcohol and red meat and process or ultra processed foods and processed meats as well. And then just making sure that you've got balance, you know, all around from every well-being pillar, the mind, movement, and sleep. The two things that I think I want to kind of just quickly mention when we talk about fiber, 
Because again, fiber is one of these things that people always ask about. So when we're talking about the prevention of diverticular disease, the role fiber plays there is bowel movement regularity. So because fiber adds bulk to your stool, promoting regular bowel movements that helps prevent constipation. Because again, just like you said, dad, constipation is associated with that increased pressure in your colon, which is a contributing factor to the formation of diverticula. Now, the other role that fiber plays in the prevention of diverticular disease is actually just your, your intestines health. We do know that, you know, a good intake of fiber is linked to a healthy gut and fiber supports the overall functioning of your digestive tract and also maintains the integrity of your intestinal wall. So from a prevention perspective, fiber is crucial. From a management perspective, so if someone is, you know, is diagnosed with diverticular disease, the things that we're looking at in terms of its role is a symptom relief. And I mentioned that across the board with different gut conditions is that we play around with the different types of fiber. We know that having a good fiber intake can prevent episodes of diverticulitis. And this I have seen as well with my clients, for example, just like my most recent client who hasn't had an episode in over six months now. So this is where I would also even highlight that Fiber is also important in maintaining that rich inner ecosystem. So your your gut microbiome or, you know, maintaining a nice, diverse gut microbiota. So we do know that a healthy gut microbiome or a diverse gut microbiome contributes to overall, you know, gut health and can play a role in preventing infections that can lead to diverticulitis. So this is where I would say, you know, as much as I hate using the term superfood, Fiber can be dubbed as a superfood in this case. Now, to quickly end it, Dad, because you're probably asking, okay, that's just too much talk about fiber. Give me examples. So if I had to choose three things that actually, you know, three, some suggestions that I've given to my clients, there's a, a breakfast example that I have recommended to clients to take every morning or even as a snack is a, um, a parfait a combination of natural yogurt and kefir. Kefir is fermented milk with some ground flaxseed, psyllium husk, and berries. The other tip is to choose three different types of vegetables at mealtime, so at lunches and dinners. And then the third suggestion is to start maybe adding a quarter of a cup. So that's only about 40 to 45 grams of chickpeas to a meal about three days a week. I think it's, it's, it covers all the fiber. <laughs> and all right, Dad. Well, it's your turn now for fact or fiction. That antibiotics are always necessary for treating diverticulitis. Oh, this is uh, fact and fiction. So, faction. <laughs> <laughs> if it is always, so it's fiction. If it is necessary to treat diverticulitis, it is a fact. Because now the uh, medical treatment or management of diverticulitis is changing a little bit. There is new guidelines that say that in mild cases that they don't need admission, and it is in immune-competent people, most likely you'd have to, you don't need to have an antibiotic liquid diet for a few days, bowel rest and hydration might pass this attack in peace. But sometimes you have to take an antibiotic and orally and to be treated as an outpatient as well. So it's not necessary sometimes, And but in the new guidelines, you don't have to take in each diverticulitis attack every time. So that's not mm -hmm. the first sign of therapy always. So it really depends and, on the severity. And for my patients before, he, he took once oral and then he went in the hospital, he took IV, IV antibiotic and then he's okay and 
didn't take antibiotic in the mild cases. So it is an example of how to, to manage the patient with diverticulitis. All right. Well, how about this other assumption? Well, let's say factor fiction round. Surgery may be considered in the treatment for diverticular disease. Fact or fiction? It's it's a fact that surgery is considered in, in treating patients with diverticulitis or diverticular disease. It depends on the complications of the patient and the presentation because acute diverticulitis, about 15% of patients might need surgery and depends on the presentation of acute. If they, sometimes they can get a perforation and sometimes they can get abscess formation. And you know, it is... Uh, it's a collection of pus, right? That it forms within the tissues. Yeah. And sometimes they have to aspirate this uh, with the CT-guided aspiration and if it is perforation, sometimes they have to go for surgery. The other point is the elective surgery. The elective surgery should be discussed with the patient. If you have got frequent diverticulitis, more than three or four times within the two years, or if they got persisting episodes, which is needing admission to hospital. So in these cases, when the patient is doesn't need emergency surgery, we can talk about elective surgery for this patient. It is indicated when the patient has things we mentioned above. And then I have a question for you. If we're talking about, let's say, surgeries or interventions, do you have to do a colonoscopy after, let's say, an episode of diverticulitis? You know, colonoscopy is the one of the main uh, procedures to diagnose uh, diverticulosis, to see the extent of diverticulosis, but it should be done a minimum of six to eight weeks after symptoms resolve. And the, uh, the, 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 you're not recommended colonoscopy for those even uncomplicated diverticulitis. Okay, So it is indicated. 100%, but when the patient is asymptomatic, mostly. But during the acute attack, as we said in our patients, with CT scan of the abdomen, it is very safe and the patient can do it. And sometimes we can do ultrasound scan as well if the patient's got, if the, there is expertise to, to diagnose uh, diverticulitis with the abdominal ultrasound, which is safe procedure. Is there a screening program at all for diverticular disease or is it not needed? No, it is not discovered accidentally even, unless sometimes accidentally some patient presenting with symptoms of abdominal pain on their left side, fever. Uh, when I examine it, I feel a tender in the, this side or sometimes I feel a mess or something. So, but mostly it is, most of the people discovered accidentally during colonoscopy or during CT scan for other causes as well. All right. Well, Dad, this was a light episode, I would say, for a diverticular disease. But by the time this airs, it's going to be the new year. It's going to be 2024. So to close, let's say, this season, would you like to share three gut health tips for 2024? I'll start. Sure. I asked you first, so go ahead. <laughs> okay. My first tip, I'll do the tips uh, as a general tips, not for gastroenterology or something. If you don't smoke, don't start. And if you smoke, try to stop during 2024. Because I think cigarettes, smoking cigarettes is the most destructive habit I've ever seen all over this my career. This is what? number one. What's your second? Number two is the regular checkup. We we problem is most of the people, they just wait till you get sick, and then they go to the doctor. Why? Just try to, as soon as you reach 40 or less, you just 
two yearly checkup. And one of the most thing we recommend is the colonoscopy at the age of 45, even if there is no family history. It saves lives. So we're talking about screening here for, for colon cancer for or everything. bowel cancer. Even for diabetes, for hypertension, for any other disease, which can be, if you discover it early, you can manage it early. And this is, you can manage it better, I mean. And the last one, which I might try to do it myself, <laughs> is to reduce the screening time and the virtual life. Please try to do it and try to live the real life once again. This is my three tips for 2024. How about yours? Well, you're probably going to tell me to stop talking because I talk so much. So yes. my three <laughs> tips for, <Only> <laughs> my three tips are number one, if I had to pick four foods to include at least five days a week, they would be your legumes, so beans, lentils, and chickpeas. And maybe you can focus on just chickpeas and brown lentils because they're not as, um, they don't cause as of an uncomfortable bloat as the their counterparts do. Spinach, mushrooms, and ground flaxseed. These tend to be my four foods that you should start including in 2024 a bit more often. My second tip is, you definitely heard me talk about this so many times, is to improve your plant diversity, meaning make sure that you're including 30 plants per week to ensure that you're exposing your gut microbiome to a range of nutrients, including a diverse range of fibers. So a little quick cheat sheet, I would say per week, aim to have 13 to 15 different vegetables, five different fruits, three different legumes or pulses four different grains and cereals, five different nuts and seeds, and a minimum of six different herbs and spices. And my third and final tip is don't neglect the mind pillar. This also goes, I guess, that hand in hand with reducing screen time and really getting off socials, getting off our phones, because it has a huge impact on the gut-brain axis. And the reason why I always talk about the mind pillar is because things like, you know, pain, bloating, and other digestive discomforts can be felt much, much strongly if you are chronically stressed or your stress levels are high. So if you haven't developed a toolbox to deal with, you know, all the stressors in our life, I recommend people to include that as part of their plan for 2024. So these are my three tips. And wishing peace around the world in this coming year, hopefully. Well, let's see what the year is going to bring. But I just wanted to thank everyone once again for making it this far and listening to us chit chat. And I really hope that you join us again now. Who knows? We're probably going to record very, very soon and get back into your ears before you know it. So make sure you subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to rate and review us. And again, you can also send us your questions. So with that, I am wrapping up, or not me, we are wrapping up another season <laughs> of the gastroenterologist and his daughter. And we hope to see you again soon. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the gastroenterologist and his daughter podcast. Don't forget to join us again. And if you've been enjoying our chats, make sure you subscribe, follow, or leave a review on your chosen platform.